Hey everyone, it's Mariah and Danny. Welcome to our podcast, Behind Behavior, where we take a look at the science behind behavior and how we actually use it in real life. Short disclaimer, nothing we say on this podcast in any way reflects the opinions of our employers or the BACB. All opinions are our own. Also, there may or may not be some explicit content or language in this episode. One of us tends to swear, and the other one usually doesn't. Join us to find out. Hello. And welcome back to Behind Behavior Podcast. This is the part two. With Kayla's Dr. back. Kayla Crook. Um, I want to add something real quick about my PhD to be or not to be episode. And that's just like in a master's program and you have your people and you have your circle you have that in a PhD program too and I could not have done it without my circle um, whether that be my friends my co-workers my committee like you really do become a close-knit family that supports each other and um, I think that's important too when you're thinking about continuing on with education finding a place that you connect with, whether that be the campus or whether that be the the lab or the mentor, or you go with a friend like I did with Maggie, you know, because you, you can't do it any other way. That's true. I mean, mm-hmm. I originally picked Southern because I was like, whoa, we're right next to a national forest. How cool would this be to go to school here? Mm-hmm. And then I went. And a wine trail. Well, yeah, and it was far enough away from family. <gasps> no. <laughs> Just keeping it real. But on today's episode, uh, we're going to listen to Kayla explain classroom management and use it, using ABA within a school system. Yes, which is we are. What Kayla, like... <laughs> had alluded to in the previous episode that this was primarily what her PhD dissertation covered. But now we're going to get more in depth with kind of like what she did techniques, how you could even relate that to an everyday um, behavior or like generalize it to a more applicable setting that our listeners are coming from. Sure. (laughs) So I will start with my practicum setting slash part of my graduate assistantship in Carbondale at SIU was working within the Tri-County school, special education school system that they had there. Um, I worked, I got some behavioral referrals, small, um, in the sense that like Joel trusted me to go out and do an observation and come back and like he would help me navigate what to do with whether that be um, ABC data or actual functional analysis data within the school. Um, But all of those individuals and clients and students that I were working with had some sort of special education need, whether that be they were on the autism spectrum or they had a developmental disability. Um, And so I got that experience in Carbondale. And then when I moved to Athens, Kevin Ayers 
and the University of Georgia College of Education had a existing relationship with Athens Clark County School District and we were immediately kind of like um not thrown necessarily but we that this was an established relationship and we knew going into the PhD program that consulting and working within the schools was going to be part of our part of our PhD program and work um and so it was a learning experience that first year we worked with one client who was engaging in severe behavior in the classroom and would eventually transition to an inpatient facility in the state um, and then transition back. And that was one part of my experience. The part of my experience I want to talk about the most was during my second and third year in Athens in my program. And what I did was I worked in one specific elementary school that was pre-K to fifth grade and I was kind of like their in-house BCBA and my instructions were you are not like my role within the contract and the memorandum of understanding between the district and the and, and UGA was that this graduate assistantship is specifically for tier one and tier three interventions in the general education classroom setting. So per the MOU and my contract, I wasn't necessarily supposed to consult with individuals or, or classrooms, special education classrooms, right? I was working with pre-K to fifth grade, gen ed, neurotypical kids who were struggling academically and behaviorally. And it was the greatest experience I've ever had. I learned so much about behavior in those two years that that's really where I found my area of like and the light bulb for me was like holy moly this is for everybody like anybody and any kid of any age can throw a tantrum and can be super disruptive in the classroom even adults even adults <laughs> look at that you know and it's like and the principles are the same and the functions are of the behavior are the same, you know, and it was, I learned so much. And so that's how I, I learned, I leaned into my dissertation and that's where I leaned really into classroom management at that tier one level. Again, meaning um, tier one interventions are for everyone. They are your blanket foundation for classroom management from the seating arrangement to how you line up and the procedures within your whole day or the classroom token economy, that's all tier one. And seven times out of 10, I could make recommendations at the tier one level that then, pro then, that then led to me not having to do an FBA functional behavior assessment and writing a full-on behavior intervention plan. We love preventative strategies. Anesthesia interventions yes. are my favorite. Mm -hmm. Us they too. Should, if they're not a BCBA's favorite, I'm a little concerned because yeah, like 90% of things could be bucketed into an antecedent intervention. <laughs> because and when you're working with teachers of any level, whether it's their first year or their 31st year, if I can help them set up their classroom where they don't have to provide a consequence necessarily, they're just laying the groundwork 
awesome. You don't have to change anything about you and your behavior. Just make a schedule. Just wear this little timer. And when it goes off, provide a praise statement. You know, like you're not having to provide a token every time they complete a math problem. That's that's exhausting. And I get it, you know, or maybe, well, let's just change. Let's just move Sally and Johnny away from each other. Let's, let's change your seating arrangement and see if that something that simple can make a difference. I feel like sometimes as a behavior analyst, it's easy for us to over see kind of like how easy these like problem solving solutions are where like somebody who's in the thick of it kind of gets numb to -hmm. it and doesn't really like they can't really take a step back necessarily and be like, oh, you know what? Let's move Sally like three more feet away from Johnny so her little arm doesn't like reach him just far enough to say like I'm not touching you you know that like (laughs) it's like okay maybe you've been around this same environment like stagnant for way too long or maybe Mm -hmm. you're like too scared to change without somebody like being the like trampoline to fall on or something so then I feel like people just get stuck in a rut and really like don't try to seek any change or don't know how to problem solve and then they get scared before they even start. I think the problem solving is is a great way to like kind of go into this discussion of I would have to flip a lot of the discussion and be like, okay, well, think about it from like this perspective, right, Miss Teacher. <laughs> if you didn't have to do work and you got to go and sit and take a nap in the principal's office what would you want to do tomorrow? Would you want to come in and do the work or would you want to throw the pencil and get to go to the principal's office and take a nap? Right. And it's kind of like, huh, I never thought of it that way. My favorite story has to do with schedule thinning. And I know we've talked about some hot takes before. So here's a hot take, write it down. Um, I don't, I understand schedule thinning sometimes. However, If a behavior intervention plan is successful in a school setting, not a clinical setting, like this is school, right? This is not one-on-one. This is, this is Monday through Friday, eight to three. And when we're showing success in the sense of we're not doing restraints, we're not writing referrals, like we are providing supports that allow a student to access the environment and access the academic work. Why are we having a conversation about schedule thinning? Meaning, you know, let's provide less reinforcement, right? Let's provide less fun stuff. Mm-hmm. And I was sitting with the principal and I just looked at her and I was like, okay, so let me ask you this question. You are getting observed by the superintendent and he says to you, you are doing such a great job. I am so proud of you. I'm going to pay you less. What would you do? And she was like, I will never mention schedule thinning again. I'm like, because that's exactly what you're doing to to this kid who has struggled most of the year. And we have finally got him to a point of, again, accessing the academic work and, and maintaining and he's making growth. And now you want to pay him less for doing such a good job? I don't get it. And she was, you know, she tried to offer like, well, you know, it's taking a lot of time from the teacher. And for you, you're spending most of your time here with him and providing all of this. Like, it's it's part of my role. Like, that is part of why I am here in this building. And the two days that I'm not here, 
I worked with this teacher and she's added it into her schedule. No one's complaining. I, we appreciate you, you know, taking maybe proactive steps to think about us, but no. In this specific scenario, what was the reinforcer given? In um, breaks. Okay. Like with, with me or with the other teacher oh so like okay. it, so when i was there and on like 10 to 15 minutes like we would walk around and, and then call it enriched right like a lot of attention you got to leave the he got to leave the classroom um and i was there three days a week and so on those three days i was the person the other two days a week um it was another teacher that he had good rapport with so yes she was leaving her classroom for you know 10 to 15 minutes a day twice a day but she and I had worked that out of like, this is the specific time. Is this okay? And she was a co-teacher as well. So she cleared, she like worked with her co-teacher and like, it was, it was all good, but no, it, it wasn't anything that like, we're, I mean, we weren't providing snacks. We weren't providing any type of tangible reinforcers. We were just taking him for a walk around the school and giving him quality, you know, one-on-one attention. Mm-hmm. That makes a lot more sense, but yeah, like moving that same scenario to like a single teacher-led classroom oh, yeah. obviously you would need to like change the reinforcer to something where you can all stay like visible of every student you know so I definitely think this worked out well for the scenario you were in but I do think like that is an easy applicable um technique that you could generalize and just change the you know the reinforcer absolutely um and there are other parts of that story that i can get into another time but that has to do with rapport building and and you know sometimes you just don't get along with your teacher and that's okay but you know what you can't hit them in that Mm -hmm. type of um situation um yeah that easily could have been translated into like tokens and each token equals so many minutes maybe like on a friday or in the principal's office for a good thing you know like the function of this student's behavior was attention he just didn't necessarily want it from his teacher um and so but absolutely but again i just go back to that moment of like we're not gonna pay him less for doing such a good job like we went from two hour tantrums and multiple physical restraints a day to zero And that's the cool thing about ABA too, is like, you're throwing out all these ideas, but it's like, if the simplest one works, then let's do that. Let's individualize it to the person. Um, It sounds like you have to collaborate a lot when working in the schools too, which I know like, uh, at least in my experience, like that's not necessarily something that we're trained on how to do. And all these soft social skills are difficult to train anyway. So do you have any like, advice or anything for bcbas out there who have to collaborate with other like non-bcba professionals that is a really good question oh goodness okay so i think there's a couple things when it comes to consulting with specifically educators teachers administrators slps ot's parent advocates right so I'll go a couple different ways with this question. My first piece of advice is what worked for me was because that was my school and I was there three days a week. 
I wanted to assimilate as much as possible to that school and the school culture. I didn't want to be seen as the behavior analyst from UGA. I wanted to be seen as another member of that school's staff and faculty. And so I paid attention literally to like the the attire because this was elementary. So it was a little bit more business casual, casual leaning, if that makes sense, you know, because you're in the floor and you're up and you're, you know, reading stories and you're up and down and you're all around. And so I learned how to kind of look like them, right? Mm-hmm. I didn't go in there with my blazer and my, you know, dress pants because I would have stuck out like a sore thumb. Even the administrators really didn't wear that type of business professional wear. Um, so that was one piece. Another piece was I went and introduced myself to every single person in that building, even the custodians, even the lunchroom workers. I introduced myself to everyone because, again, I was only there three days a week. So I wanted to make sure that they had seen me, even if they didn't remember my name. They're like, I know her from somewhere. She does something in this building. Um, and that took, I mean, I was doing that for the first like six to eight weeks of my assistantship was just trying to be established as a part of the school community. Um, I went to faculty meetings. I went to staff meetings. I ate lunch in the teacher lounge with random teachers and just like got to know people, um, so that when it came time for me to start taking referrals and to start providing feedback, it wasn't as if I was a stranger. I think that's the biggest piece. Even if you are doing consulting for one student, you know, through a clinic and that you they want you to help, you know, transition back to school, you're not a stranger, you know, and you want to help both the student and the school slash teacher succeed. Um, and what does that look like? I have had to rewrite several behavior intervention plans because I made them too difficult. And that was on me. That's not on the teacher. That's on me as the behavior analyst to recognize like, oh, I'm asking too much. Like, yes, this would be like a really good clinical intervention plan, but it's not good for the school. And you have to be able to recognize that in yourself as a consultant. Um to both recognize like, okay, this would be really awesome, but it's it's not going to be awesome if it's not going to be in- implemented with fidelity. And so I need to give them something that's going to be implemented with fidelity that still is going to provide access to the reinforcement needed to change behavior. Um, it's not a jab at you or me as a behavior analyst to be like, I, I can't do this. For a teacher to say that and you'd be like, okay, well, Let's work together and let's figure out what you are willing and able to do, because I want you to feel successful so that the student isn't stopped, not suspended anymore. That's both of our goals, right? And then on the flip side of that, you have the, you know, for better or worse, the teachers who are just like, no, I'm not buying into this. Like, okay, you don't have to buy into this necessarily a thing that is going to work however you work in this building and the principal says you're going to do this so at this point this becomes not about a me and a you miss teacher you got to go work with your admin because I don't, I don't know I don't have anything else for you like this this is the plan 
because I've had those teachers too who are right. you know quote old school right the rows and columns and no praise and no reinforcers mm-hmm. I remember that that's how I went to school that's not it doesn't work for everyone I'll just definitely right. does not work for everyone <laughs> I feel like some of those teachers it's kind of like okay let me give you more of my time and I'll implement this and you can watch me do it and see how successful it is and now you need to implement it (laughs) sort of thing because even with like RBTs if you're in a clinic setting or you know like direct care staff that Danny might be working with a lot of times if you have rapport with that client like you can step in and you should be stepping in to show the other staff and just model that behavior like this is how you can get them to do this and I wrote it all out in this behavior plan yeah that's true and I feel like sometimes um it it is kind of seeing is is believing and you kind of have to have rapport not only with the client but with that staff as well you know if I'm just somebody who kind of is coming out in off the street and telling you what to do I I get it you don't mm-hmm. You're trying to come in and do your shift and go home, right? But, you know, kind of like you were saying, Kayla, like if, if I'm there all the time and you see me handle, you see me work with this person who is notoriously difficult to work with, oh, well, maybe I'm going to listen to what she has to say because she's doing something that works. And that's another piece, too, that I wanted to make sure if there was a tantrum or a crisis, I was there. Mm-hmm. whether it was my quote refer like my student or not how can I help do you want me time do you need to tap out do you want me like what how can I help this situation even if it's just blocking the door I'm mm-hmm. not running from this crisis I'm not afraid I'm not you know out of my wheelhouse here I, I wanted to be seen like you said in the trenches this is my school these are my students too and I'm here to help you mm-hmm. um that first year that was 20 that was 2016 2017 school year that was a lot of just rapport building I really didn't do a lot of actual interventions that first year I was there I put out fires I was seen the next year 2017 2018 was gold Mm -hmm. I mean that had some problems don't get me wrong and I had some struggles but I was in the school. They were like, hey, Kayla, so good to see you. Glad you're back. You know, can't wait to work with you. All these things because of the work of just rapport building. Rapport and building I, goes such a long way. I was just going to say, do not underestimate rapport building. <laughs> That's Don't. like the the whole foundation, really. Actually, that is a really great point because I wanted to talk about restraint and de-escalation within crises in the school. Like I mentioned, I wanted to be seen and, sounds weird, but participate in crises management or tantrums within the school to also help build rapport with those teachers. And one of the things that I learned and was trained on eventually was de-escalation and restraint. And in the district that I was working in, they use mindset training, which um, utilizes de-escalation. And then if and when needed for crisis management, um, physical restraint, whether that be one person or two person 
full on the floor restraint. However, there are safeguards within place for each of those restraints, meaning if you do a one-person restraint, there still should be another adult in the room to help and make sure that everyone is safe. If you are utilizing a two-person restraint, which is on the floor, they are on their side. And for both standing one person, floor, two person, there's a 15-minute limit. If you reach 15 minutes in that hold, you have to release and you then have and basically start over. Um mm-hmm. been in a lot of cycles of those. Oh, for 15 minutes, we gotta release, and then you know, a punch or a kick happens and you go right back into another one. But at least right. you have released for a, a period of time and you've moved around and tapping out and like knowing yourself. Like then they go over that within the training too about like what does that look like? How do you know if you are if you're drained and you need to tap out and what does that look like? What does that feel like? Um, and then the de-escalation piece. And I am interested to hear y'all's perspective as behavior analysts on de-escalation because no matter how you slice it, de-escalation is one-on-one attention. And so for me working in the school district and working in a, especially at a elementary school took me some time to, learn to love to hate de-escalation especially when the function was attention right oh I hated it and and I would talk to Joel about it and we would go back and forth about what to do because there's no denying I am reinforcing this this behavior because I am providing attention however there's no denying I prevented a crisis and I prevented a restraint or a suspension right and so One way that I did kind of like balance it out was I always regained some sort of compliance or um, experimental or academic control over the situation. Um, Whether that is a simple round of Simon Says or, you know, hey, let's let's write on the whiteboard, let's play a game of hangman, like something that demonstrated some sort of compliance that they are ready to go back into the classroom and follow directions um otherwise you're not ready and I'm not gonna take you back and we can have this whole conversation again about like you know frustration and anger and whatever it is you know whatever feeling or emotion that the student was experiencing at that time but at the end of a DS at the end and when you are we are finally regaining that regulation you should be able to follow simple one-step directions and if you can't then you're not ready to go back to the classroom. What do you guys think about that? So I think I think you make a lot of good points. Um, I'm also trained in de-escalation. It's a different curriculum than, than yours. Mine's called safety care. And as I've mentioned on the podcast before, I work only with adults. We do not use any sort of physical restraint. Um, although I am trained in that, uh, my company does not allow it. And on the majority of my clients, it would not be appropriate for me to use that. So most of the, all of the time, if there's a crisis, the only thing I can use is verbal de-escalation. So I think that that can be tricky, but I think that we also need to be careful of like overthinking it because like you said, ultimately in the moment, I would rather reinforce disruptive behavior rather than it lead to something dangerous 
if if you're going to talk to me and cuss me out, I would rather you do that than punch out a window or something. So I feel like that's a way to justify it. I feel like also there, if things kind of escalate again, like there are ways to like monitor for safety and help de-escalate the situ- situation while like avoiding giving a lot of reinforcing attention, right? Like we're not playing video games. We're not eating pizza. <laughs> you know, it's it's a quiet environment. I'm neutral. I'm not laughing and joking with you the same way that I am when we're like cool and when we're talking during a session or something. Um, I also think you can be a little bit creative as a behavior analyst and kind of shape the attention that you're reinforcing in that moment. You know, you can be a little bit more neutral as things escalate and as things deescalate and you see signs of calm, whether that be somebody lowering their tone of volume, somebody, you know, they were pacing and now they've stood still, whatever. Those are the things you orient your attention towards. And we we don't have to talk about the other things. You know, the fact that you were kicking the wall a second ago, I'm not going to mention that. Yes, all of those mm. things. You know, we're <laughs> in a... um. I go back to the safe room that I had, which was basically just the teacher's lounge. It didn't have, it had a table and some chairs, but that's kind of where I would like scoot a a student to if I needed to like, you know, get them out of the classroom. And he's like, yeah, you can call me whatever name you want, but I'm not talking to you until you are lowered your voice for 10 seconds, you know, or something like that. And that's just for me, that's may or may not even be a verbal direction right it's just i'm just gonna stand here and wait you can't leave you you can't hurt anything or anyone and i'm just gonna let you be and then we're gonna talk about it what do you need to go back into the classroom and be a successful human for a few minutes or you know to get back into it but you're exactly right like cursing and yelling and crying is not the time to de-escalate and i think that's the piece that gets missed with people with individuals teachers admin police whoever that goes through these crisis trainings that is missed they try to talk over the crying or over the tantrum or over the cursing and that's not it i mean i don't care what you call me but i'm not going to speak until you've brought it down a little bit um and i don't know if that goes into like a misrepresentation in the training of how to provide de-escalation or if it's just in the moment and you're just trying to to regain control of the situation and I don't really I can be here all day I think it's a reflex because that's that's a conversation I have with my staff a lot too is like kind of our natural instinct is is to teach and problem solve in that moment but if somebody is so dysregulated that they're to the point of like dangerous behavior you know punching holes in walls that you're threatening to hurt people they're not at a capacity to listen. And that goes for anybody, you know, myself included. If, you know, if if we get so upset that we're yelling and swearing, I'm not listening to you at that point. So your teaching, your problem solving in that moment is going in one year and out the other. That's what I always tell my staff. Like if you're still, if the, the individual is still that escalated, then our priority right then is, is safety. We can talk about problem solving we can talk about ways that they could have expressed themselves better later not right now right this is where that rft like part comes in when you're too dysregulated your brain literally won't make the connections to learn new stuff yeah so 
there's zero point in trying to like give a command and like get compliance when you're at that elevated state you're just wasting your breath and then you get mad and then like you could potentially find yourself in like a power situation where you're just not going to win but you have to already have this knowledge going into that de-escalation piece ahead of time otherwise like you're just kind of running in circles nobody really is getting anything done but to further on like the de-escalation piece that I have experience in I mean I've worked in a clinic with very small children where you know I've had extensive extinction bursts where I like (laughs) let something go and want to change like the way we're doing stuff and just get like a lot of crazy behavior from that and in those situations I would reach for the experimental control to be like regained before I try to like do something else and move on and most of the time it would look like attention where you're just kind of like taking a breather and then you ask like a simple task and then we'd restart up but I've been everywhere from like not having a calm down room or like a padded room safety area and I've been in plenty of restraints where we've had to pause and like get up take a swing get back down swap out like a lot of those situations it is super crucial you know like your own weak points like I in particular lose it if I get spit on particularly in the face region like I know that's a hard limit for me I need to at least like step away and like wipe my face off before I can re-engage I know you're not like taking it personally but you know, spit is often our most readily available tool when you don't have anything else available. (laughs) And I just prefer to not encounter that. So I let other people I'm knowing, I know I'll be working with or engaging and seeing on a daily basis before we get into a situation like that. Like, that's my weak point. If I get spit on, like maybe check on me. And what's yours so I can check on you and ask if you need me to tap out and swap. But then I've also, you know, worked with older kids, older adolescents, where maybe you're too large for me to get you to a calm down room on my own. And maybe we're stuck in an all glass foyer and I need to get a 300 pound, like six foot five, you know, quarterback teenager. (laughs) To calm down based on the rapport that I've previously built with them. Like, I've been, right, (laughs) like, dangerous situations all the way around. I've had, like, crazy situations where maybe a new therapist on someone isn't seeing, like, precursor behavior kind of, like, lead into that escalation point. And by then you're too far. But you also have to, like, let that new therapist kind of, like, take the reins and try to, like, continue building their rapport. Because it also is important for that client to see, like, who helped bring them back out of that dysregulated state and actually was able to get them to calm down. And that helps with rapport building. So there's a lot of different aspects that go into, like, kind of coming out of um, a de-escalated or becoming de-escalated and becoming regulated again typically when it's an older individual like teen or even with Danny like an adult um if you're close 
then I would go like with nonverbal prompts. I'm not going to be talking and adding stimuli to the environment. I might just be like gesturing or like suggesting something. I might be using some kind of like common uh, slang ASL. I'm not going to say we're using like appropriate ASL, but maybe if walking is like their preferred activity, you might like gesture like the hand walking um, for little kids. I often find that when they're they want to scream and shout and get in your face about stuff, I just tend to start to whisper because they can't hear what you're saying if you're whispering. And then they're like, oh, wait, what are you saying? And get kind of curious. That works with adults, too. (laughs) Oh, I haven't done that with an adult. (laughs) Yeah. But I there's like different things you can kind of just pull out of a toolbox but you have to have that toolbox like established if you're that client or the therapist or even like a parent and you don't have this toolbox established it helps to learn these from your supervisor or like this podcast or someone who's there helping coach you with these tools because some of these I haven't even thought about in ages but like if I needed to use it I could just do it and I wouldn't even have thought about it. Yeah. Um, how do I bring this up, guys? Trauma. And and how... So the district that I worked in was a Title I district. So, you know, that was low SES, um, poverty rates were high, transient communities. So, like, there were seven elementary schools and it was not unheard of for, you know a family to bounce, you know, every year at a different school because they were moving across Athens. Um, And I think I know I can think of at least a handful of students that a lot of the antecedent to their, their big, their crisis situation could be linked back to some trauma experience that they had, whether that be, you know, food scarcity or a divorce or you know abuse whether it be physical mental um something in the environment kind of just like pushes that button um and then it's on and popping from there um and then you add on I had one student in particular who had experienced some some pretty severe physical abuse and it was a hard place to be when you got you had to restrain him and that just set it off even more (laughs) um because of his history and his traumatic experience and so it's it's tough you know the restraining with trauma like that is particularly difficult because Mm -hmm. it's the safest thing for the client or the individual at the time but it's also very triggering and pushes their their dysregulation even more right and i feel like physically they're safe but mentally and emotionally we have just pushed their button to the limit and it's gonna take hours to come Mm -hmm. down and i think we should emphasize um i since we're talking about restraint i think that this is one thing that gives aba a really bad rap because this is kind of what a lot of people think of Mm -hmm. so i think it's really important to emphasize that this is always a last resort always although yeah although (laughs) we're all and don't put your hands on people if you are not trained absolutely not do not we we are all trained in this but i don't know a single behavior analyst that got into the field 
because they like de-escalating somebody. You know, as we've talked about in previous episodes, antecedent behavior, antecedent interventions, things that happen before the behavior is ever even in the room is always the best method. Preventative is always the best. Yes. And honestly, I've been, I bet I, I wouldn't, I'm, I would not put, I would not do it in restraint now. I haven't gone through the retraining. I haven't gone through the recertification process. Like it would be inappropriate for me to do that. Um, the de-escalation piece, I feel like I, I could safely and, and effectively do that, but I, it would be completely inappropriate for me to engage in a physical restraint mm-hmm. four years later. I completely so. agree. I have not been retrained in probably two-ish years or so. The mm-hmm. only like tool in restraints that I would ever feel like I personally need to use would be like this would be more of like a self-defense realm not with a client um they teach you like a hair grabbing technique typically that one's always good for females to know a biting technique wait are you talking about how to grab somebody else's hair or how to get out of it if they grab yours how to get out of it if they grab yours and yeah. then the the biting technique, that one's like always push, push in. The, right. Yeah. Feed, you feed the bite. That's always at the forefront of my mind, mostly because I have cats. And <laughs> you always want to feed the bite and then they get pissed off mm-hmm. when they're like, wow, this really isn't comfortable for me either. And you're like, taught you something, didn't I, bud? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's a good point, Danny. And thank you for bringing it up about, you know, I'm not looking for reasons to restrain people. Like, it's awful. It's taxing on the adult or the or the person doing the restraining um, to do it. I don't. It's exhausting. It's exhausting. And I think that like and then it's exhausting for the kid, too, or or adult or adolescent, you know. Lord, I don't want to do that. Who wants yeah. to do that? That's not fun. No, and that's why we emphasize rapport building so much on this podcast. Because truly, if you have good enough rapport, a lot of times you can avoid it escalating. At least in my experience, I I am technically trained in restraint just because I am the trainer uh, for my region and my company, but we do not restrain. I have never had to use physical restraint on anybody in my since I became a BCBA. I've always you been able to verbally lucky. de-escalate. Yes, but I, but I also work with adults I don't work with kids like and I didn't work with high severity like a lot of other behavior analysts have so depends on the population the type of people that you work with but that's why we emphasize rapport building so much because if you can prevent it that's of course the best way to do it I think right. too during my time in the school in the, the elementary school in particular I was known around the building as like, you know, as the behavior analyst, but then they all, the teachers and staff knew that like, well, if we call Kayla, we won't have to restrain because she'll take more as, as far as the, you know, any aggression or anything like that. She'll take more than I will because Mm -hmm. that's her job. And so I would get called and I just, my presence of being there actually reduced restraints because I wouldn't I wouldn't let them restrain them like mm-hmm. if I'm getting slapped with an open like an open handed from a pre-care that you don't you do not need to restrain that right like, no 
you know, and so like my my tolerance level was higher than most of the teachers in that building. And so I would get called a lot and it actually reduced restraints mm-hmm. in a weird way. <laughs> because I'm like, no, this no, child totally weighs like 20 sense. pounds or, you know, they're th- four years old in pre-K. That mm-hmm. does make sense a lot. But then I've also ran into that being an issue working in like a clinic setting where you can't ever get that um, like reinforcement of your presence to generalize to other staff. Oh, so like what happens when you are on spring break and then you're not there those three days of the week and the kids are still, you know, the kids are still going to school. Maybe your breaks don't add up. And then that's the worst week ever. I mean, that's true. Nobody else can get so-and-so to calm down. Like nobody knows Pokemon like Kayla does. Like we can't talk about whatever we usually do. You can't talk about Bruno. Yeah. Like (laughs) we, and it's just like a lot of that stuff can be added into like the behavior plan too. And it's important that every behavior plan should involve like, um, the the barrier right like if x then y and y is the mm-hmm. restraint but i'm also thinking too like every behavior plan should have like uh proactive and reactive strategies yes yes the proactive are going to be like the antecedent interventions mm-hmm. and should tell you stuff like hey if they're doing xyz behavior they might be gearing up you mm-hmm. know and, then and also reactive. include their preferences. Here's how you can grow your rapport with them. Right. It's the as easy as talking who, about Pokemon. Right. Clinicians who, like, take that little fact sheet, that's, like, the golden ticket. Mm-hmm. Take it and run with it. Like, the BCBAs put that and provide that material so you can take advantage of it. Like, you should be knowing that and using that as, like, the best thing to jump off of especially when you're starting with a new client and your bca should be training you on that behavior plan and if they're not you should be asking them to train you on it (laughs) but the reactive strategy should also say like here's known techniques that work to get them to like re-calm down also Mm -hmm. don't ever tell anyone to just calm down oh no please don't that's the fastest way to escalate somebody (laughs) That's true. That's very true. <laughs> um, this has been a fantastic conversation. I don't know if I actually answered anything about working in the school district, and but I'm happy where our, where it went. I feel like we kind of took a wide turn, but the listeners will be fine. It's a necessary conversation, I feel like. It is. I feel like this is a conversation that will definitely be continued because I get a little riled up about it. I do too. And I, I think that I, there are, um, the behavior plans and entered entry and exit criteria and the proactive and reactive. Like I have more thoughts, but I could just keep going. And I think maybe I get a part three listeners vote for me for a part three. Oh, okay. Okay. You heard it here first. So does that mean we're ready to wrap things up for today? Bits and bobs, bits and bobs. Well, guests first, Kayla, what's your bits and bobs for today? So for today, I'm going to talk about the app called Storygraph. And if you are a reader like myself and Danny and Mariah, um, then you've heard about Goodreads. Goodreads is a very popular app. But I want to tell you about a not as popular app called Storygraph. 
same concept. You track your reading, you track your goals, but they give you beautiful graphs and they track your data and it is the most nerdy, beautiful thing ever. Um, it's a free app download and I love it. I love it more. I don't even use Goodreads anymore. Um, I like StoryGraph better and that's, that's my plug. I'm it's so interested because I use Goodreads and like it's it's fine, but if I could get some more like data behind what I read, I'm so excited to look into this one. So if you are also interested in StoryGraph, you can, and you have a Goodreads like Danny and I and Kayla, um, you can actually go in to Goodreads and download all of your data and then input it into StoryGraph. Which is like eh, kind of like a high response cost to like swapping over to Storygraph. I, which I is, didn't do that. I just I just jumped. I wanted to keep my data, and that's kind of where I got stuck because I realized I needed to go to my laptop and like download mm. from there because I hate doing stuff app to app, and I'm I'm certainly not downloading something on my phone and then ever finding it again. So I needed to go to my mac to do it and i got stuck so the response cost for me is a little more in depth but i'm still gonna do it and switch to story graphs yeah <laughs> if would. i can keep my goodreads data that's like more of an incentive for me so i don't lose that that's cool. right maybe i'll just do both i know a lot of people who do both we should link our goodreads oh, and story shit. graphs in the show notes done what is your bits and bobs danny also i just want to let everybody know that she stole this idea from me this was in our shared bits and bobs ideas folder first of all i just put it there i i don't know that using it i don't brought out the first of all anyway my bits and bobs is Duolingo. Um, if you're My not bits familiar, and Bob. our bits and bobs <laughs> is Duolingo. If you're not familiar with Duolingo, it is a language learning app. There is a free version. That's what we both use. There are also, I think, two tiers of paid versions. I honestly couldn't tell you about them because I don't use them. I can um, tell you about them because oh. I'm a minimal but extra. You pay for Duolingo, but yes. not Zooms. Okay, listen to me. <laughs> okay, listen. I have a pretty good, this is going to sound awful. I have a pretty good track record of, hey, my friend has so-and-so service. Let me see if I can have access to so-and-so service as well. Oh, so she steals passwords. Yes. Um, I don't steal passwords, and that's definitely not how Duolingo works, okay? She mooches passwords. <laughs> Borrows. Um, that I had a friend give me access to because she previously paid for a family account, which lets you have six people on the account with one person pays. I'm, I don't care. Like, I'll pay you a portion of it. Danny, I'm going to do this with HBO. Don't tell HBO, Max. Um, <laughs> but we... Like, our friend's family plan on Duolingo canceled, and she didn't renew. And I wasn't going to be like, hey, girl, renew your thing just so I can have access to it, because I'm not going to do that. So I tried for, like, a few weeks of 
the like basic Duolingo with the ads again, and I just could not. All of my productivity like took a tank because after every lesson, there's an ad, and mm-hmm. I swear it's so loud. It's just like when the commercial it. when the commercials come on TV and the commercials like eight decimals louder than the television show. I just can't like Mariah. Just mute it. <laughs> I, I literally can't that like 10 second ad just like snaps all of my attention and then I just instantly want to leave the app so anyways <laughs> I bought the individual plan and it's like $6.99 a month so what's, one latte what's your streak right now my streak right now yeah are you gonna beat Danny's probably I, know, I think Danny, so I think I am beating Danny I'm at 134 days. My partner is like 800 and something days. Her partner is ridiculous. Yes. What are they learning? Every day. He's learning French. Uh, Sorry, babe, if you're listening to this, but he already speaks French. So it's like kind of cheating. (laughs) Oh, that's for sure cheating. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Wow. I have a streak on Wordle. But I don't think that counts. That's totally it used different. To count. <laughs> it used to count. My streak on Duolingo tonight after I do a lesson, because I usually like eat dinner and then I'll sit down and do Duolingo and then I whatever for the rest of the night. So my streak today will be 166 days. And oh, I'm okay. learning Spanish because I took five years of French. So sometimes I'll flip flop, but I never took any Spanish, mm-hmm. which is why I was more interested in learning something different. The conjugations of verbs in Spanish are significantly easier than French. That is true. Yeah. Okay. So you're about a month ahead of me. I'm at a 134 day streak and I'm learning Swahili. That's amazing. I'm proud of both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Yeah. Okay. Well... Mariah, what's your what's bits your bits and bobs? I thought you guys were never gonna ask. <laughs> My bits and bobs for the week are lo-fi beats. Like if you find a lo-fi playlist, I have a preferred one on Spotify, and it's amazing. I feel like it really helps me focus when I'm trying to hit that flow state with work. Um, if I'm doing anything that I just like need to get done and I don't really enjoy, or I even put it on when I'm like expecting guests to arrive over, I'll like pop it on our Alexa or whatever Bluetooth speaker thing you have. And if you play it, you know, kind of just as like background music, it's nice because it's like filling that void of there's no like entertainment going on until people get there. But then everybody just kind of starts grooving to these lo-fi beats. Most of them don't don't have like a song aspect, like nobody's speaking in them a lot of the time. If they are, they're kind of just talking. Like it's not very rhythmy. You're just like connecting to the beat more. And I really like it. One time I had it on for Thanksgiving, I think. And my father-in-law was like, Hey, what kind of playlist was that? I really, really liked it. So if my father-in-law likes it, you'll like it. 
Nice. It's I the, love it's lo-fi the family plan. Too. It was the family plan for me, though, on Spotify. <sighs> what a mooch. Anyway, well, Kayla, thanks for joining us again. I'm going to put all of Kayla's contact info in our show notes. It's yes. been fun. Vote for me for another guest spot. <laughs> Let us know on Instagram, Facebook, or email. Or email. Yep. All right. I'm going to crook out. Thanks for listening today. You can find us on Instagram at, at Behind Behavior Pod. Or if you're old school, send us an email at contactbehindbehavior at gmail.com. Smell you later. Thank you.